and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. Back in May, we podcasted a meeting from the Radical Independence Campaign when they were planning their activities for the next few months. And one of the things they decided to do was to have a conference. And I'll link to that episode in the notes if you want to refresh your memory. The conference has now happened. So this is the discussion. I'm from Edinburgh, Rick. I'm also involved uh, with the organising committee uh, for National Rick. First of all, I want to welcome you all here today. Thank you all for coming. Why are we here today? What are our hopes? What are our aims? So we're hoping to bring together elements from the left wing of the independence movement to discuss the impasse that we find ourselves in and to find our way forward. We're hoping to come up through the workshops with some concrete steps that we can take forward. What are the next steps that we, as a movement, need to make to take forward our struggle, okay? We want people to get to know each other and make new friends and comrades. We want to improve, this is really important, we want to improve our organisation in, in our communities, to build radical communities. And we want to reach out to people who are not here that we'd like to be here. So it's about networking, building relationships, all of that. So it's quite ambitious. That's what we're trying to do. So I'm going to invite the speakers in turn to uh, make a contribution, telling us their way of seeing through and beyond the impasse that we found. So first of all, I'd like to ask Kevin from uh, Socialists for Independence to speak. Thanks very much. Very, very quickly, Socialists for Independence, it was an organisation formed about two years ago. I'm a member of the Scottish Socialist Party. Myself and Francis Curran stood for the leadership in ASSP. And we had certain ideas about how we'd want to develop the left in Scotland. Because if we talk about an impasse, maybe you could argue within the left there's a similar situation. Being unsuccessful, we felt that rather than wait, it was important that we try and take that debate out wider than the SSP into the left. And the idea is it's to, to create a space almost to allow left-wing activists to come together and discuss ideas, but also where is the left going to go in Scotland over the future years. As the name suggests, we're obviously pro-independence and the wider independence campaign. For us, it's crucial that we work with them. The title of this conference is Break the Impasse, and there can be no doubt that there is a sense within the independence movement over the last few while of stasis, of things not really moving forward and coming from that a sense of frustration. There's been this much sought after second independence referendum and it's been faced with just downright intransigence for the Tories. And obviously now as we move into a period where it looks like Labour is going to form the next government both in Scotland and in UK, then very much that is the same tune that's been played by the leadership of the Labour Party. I'll maybe touch on, you know, the idea of where we might sit if there is a Labour government in this, but that certainly is a feeling, I think, within, the, you know, the broader independence movement. And I suppose the point we should make is we'd be deluding ourselves if we didn't think building towards an independent Scotland and advancing the ideas that are left within that wasn't going to be something that's complicated. And I think that's very much been the case over the last few while. And added to that has been the kind of well-documented problems within the SNP. You know, you've had the scenario where we're looking at the prospect, it would appear of a decline in electoral support for the SNP, rather than the West, obviously an indication of that. 
And that then, for the broader population, means how will that be perceived by the broader population in relation to the prospects for independence? Will that be seen as a setback in terms of wider support for independence? Or will people be able to separate the declining electoral fortunes of the SNP with a continued, it would appear, reasonably high level of support for independence? And I think that's something that will play over the coming months and it's something that the movement in general has to be aware of. And I suppose ultimately, and this is maybe the key point, is the reason why we're in this situation is because fundamentally, based on the opinion polls, things have not changed in terms of the wider population of support for independence and those in favour of the union. And as a result of that, then what that means is that the Tories feel reasonably confident about being intransigent in the face of demands for a referendum. In fact, they probably see electoral advantage in Scotland as being the key uh, party that's defending the union. And similarly for the Labour Party in Scotland, the indications in other Glen Hamilton West, for example, Tories voted for Labour because they were, that was a way they saw of defeating the SNP and advancing the interests of the union. So I think the key issue particularly for people that are sales activists, is we have to discuss how can we change that situation? How can we move on the situation in terms of building support for the ideas of independence and beginning to change, break the impasse, as the name of this conference suggests? And I think we're in an interesting period for the independence movement. Anyway, it was a book you can remember immediately after 2014, the key feature of that was we entered into a phase where we had an absolutely mass explosion of membership in the SNP. People might remember at the exhibition centre, uh, I wasn't there, but thousands of people at a rally celebrating the SNP and the electoral prospects of the SNP. You then had a situation where you had this continued success for the SNP electorally, and maybe a sense developing that, as a result of that, the British state would eventually be forced into granting an independence referendum. Once there was an independence referendum called, that would give momentum to the movement, and in the back of that, we could say, successfully get you know, a, a majority for independence. And obviously now, I think that that has been questioned. I think it's been questioned over the last couple of years. I think that it's been questioned in terms of well, what will happen in a changed situation and the, you know, the situation that I mentioned earlier. And I think, like everything else, that presents problems, but does it also, for example, the left and the independence movement, create opportunities? Because does that mean that there's greater openness within the movement towards the ideas of saying, well, what sort of movement, what sort of ideas is it that's going to advance the cause of independence, that's going to build popular support for independence? And I think obviously Socialists for Independence, we're explicit, we want to develop left-wing pro-independence organisations. We want to work across the left. We want to work with every independence movement that shares that broad perspective and in so doing try to advance within the wider movement the ideas of the left and the ideas and policies that might actually make a difference in relation to you know, how the independence movement develops. And significantly, one of the significant initiatives that the SAA, that the Sources for Independence took was people, some of you might have been involved in it, the Power of the People campaign, where at a, an event not dissimilar to this, we discussed the energy crisis and we took the step of saying, let's, we need to build a campaigning organisation, it's not enough to talk about it, we have to tackle what then was a critical problem for uh, working class people. 
And what we were able to do was work across the left, even at times working across the constitutional divide to pull people together and build in a successful campaign to challenge what was happening with the cost of living crisis. And I think that raises an issue about what is the relationship with the left? Is there's division in the independence question, but what is the relationship with the left in general in Scotland? And how do we look at ways and means of trying to work across, sometimes if necessary, the constitutional uh, divide? And obviously, background to power of people was it was taking place against a, a, a time of increased class struggle, dare I say it. There was strikes, there was reasonably significant street demonstrations in support of those strikes. There was a big rally, there was this enough is enough campaign that didn't seem to go anywhere afterwards, but there was going on for a thousand people in the city halls, mainly young activists, motivated by the idea of tackling the cost of living crisis, fighting for improved paying conditions across the public and private sector. And that movement in itself is significant, and it does raise the question, how do we, as a movement, and as left activists, how do we interact with that movement? And I think that's an open question. I think it's something that we have to discuss. Is there, for example, scope for the idea of a broader democracy movement? Because where there is agreement in sections of the left is the idea that how long can the Tories, how long Labour, how long can the British state deny people in Scotland the right to determine their own future? And is there scope across the left towards you know, working around that central demand about democracy and the democratic demands for Scotland deciding its own future. And with that, I think it then raises questions, for example, about where do we sit in Scotland at the moment, the current devolution settlement? Most of the battles around about the devolution settlement have been mainly defensive. The increased use of Section 35 orders. And obviously that's been used as a way to highlight the democratic deficit in Scotland. But for example, now you've got demands made by the SDC and others towards workers' rights being devolved to Scotland. I think that's a progressive demand that we would support. And obviously it raises the idea that, well, not only is it a demand that we would support, but is this a way that we could practically show the benefits to the people of Scotland about the different sort of Scotland that can be created if we have the maximum powers that independence will give us. If we can create a different culture in workplaces in Scotland where people have got proper rights, trade union rights and otherwise, does that present the opportunity to make, in a practical sense, the progressive case for a different type of Scotland? These are issues, are ideas, the debates. Okay? People might have different positions and opinions on it, but I think it is something that we've got to consider. And it then raises the question, how, in the, how do we operate, how do we organise? You know, a year or so ago, we pulled together on a very informal basis some activists on the left to discuss some of these issues. And it was quite a, it was quite a positive meeting, it was quite a positive sense of, you know, the left, we need to start to change the situation with the left in Scotland and we're going to move that on. And I think that process continues, because at this stage, the likelihood is there's going to be a general election in uh, Britain next year. After Thursday, it looks increasingly likely that a Labour government is going to come to power. And that raises questions about where does that take politics in Scotland and politics in the wider UK. The Labour leadership committed to defending the union. Is that fundamentally going to change? I think that is unlikely. But is there no pressure that can be put on the Labour leadership than perhaps the Tories around this issue of the democratic demand? For the right of people in Scotland to, to make a decision 
on the future for themselves. So these are all the issues that I think present themselves to the movement. And to answer that fundamental question about breaking the impasse, then I think it does go back to the idea of we have to seriously consider how, particularly in working class communities in Scotland, the majority of the population, how can we continue to advance the idea that an independent Scotland, how can we you know, convince that section of the population that an independent Scotland means something that's fundamentally different? One of the criticisms we would have, for example, with SNP leadership is it's very much a business-as-usual approach in terms of their political direction. We want to offer something different, and how do we do that? What are the ideas that we advance in working-class communities to say these are practically the benefits that uh, independence can bring? How do we form campaigns, some of them defend some of the power of the people? Um, for Cumbernauld, North Lanarkshire announced the closure of 39 community facilities, there was a massive response in the communities across North Lanarkshire, and within a week, North Lanarkshire backed down. How do we develop these campaigns, some of them defensive, some of them offensive, like fighting for the improvement of workers' rights? That's the issues, I think, that present itself to activists like ourselves. I think it's an issue that we have to take into the wider independence movement, and I think in that basis, then that points a way forward to how as a movement, we would start to break the impasse that, we, that the movement finds itself at a current moment. So, thanks very much. Now, I'd like to call on uh, Kirsten Murray from Scottish Socialist Youth uh, to speak. Hello, so I'm Kirsten Murray from the Scottish Socialist Youth. We did have a banner, <laughs> but it did kind of give up, which we would do as a, as a group. We will not give up like our banner did. Um, so I actually couldn't vote in 2014, I was a year too young, but I remember being very interested in the Yes movement and in the independence campaign in general. I remember I would have, like me and my friends would all talk about it around the lunch table in school, and some of us were yes, some of us were no, and we would have like these big in-depth conversations about which way was the right way to vote. I'm currently doing a MSc in Applied Gender Studies at the University of Strathclyde, so bringing in gender and feminism to the independence movement is something I'm personally really passionate about. I'm initially from Ayrshire, from Live, Laugh, Larg. And like most other members of the SSY, we're part of a generation of young people in Scotland that grew up with Scottish devolution and indie politics. But we also grew up witnessing the rebirth of the far right in Scotland and witnessing radicalised young men online and people and like villainization of like people who identified with feminism and the feminist movement. We grew up alongside Blair's Iraq War and the crash of 2007. And we also grew up in most of us in communities ravaged by Tory austerity. I don't think many people in our generation managed to avoid the effects of this. Even if they were from more well-off communities, they will still have ultimately been affected by it. And I think a lot of people our age don't really understand that these things are all connected, that this is why they've been affected by these things. I know I speak for the SSY when I say, as much as it may seem like young people have the rest of our lives to win independence, we really don't. As we've discussed, we're really at an impasse. Many of us are switched on and are really worried about what the future holds. Many of us live with our parents into our 20s because moving out just is not a financial capability we have. And if we do move out, it's often into decaying private rents that are run by exclusive landlords who just really pinch us for every single penny we have. 
we're living in a worsening climate where we're worried about what things are going to look like when we're in our 60s, 70s, if we're even going to get there. And one thing we can be sure of is that we're almost certainly not going to be getting our pensions. And alongside that, we probably also wouldn't see great old age care. But with the decline of the NHS under Tory austerity, it's really just collapsing. Communities are also collapsing under neoliberalism and the Scottish mental health crisis continues to worsen. And amidst all this chaos, the far right grows slowly but surely. Whether you're trans people, pregnant people, access to healthcare is becoming a really worrying thing. Whether that's from protest groups outside the QE or just general online bigotry being spread. And this all really connects into like a white patriarchal supremacy that is growing in Scotland and is getting worse and worse. Whether that's through media broadcasts spewing misogynistic and transphobic messages into homes and classrooms across the country. The SSY wants to build a movement of young people who are prepared to take control of our future and fight back against this horrible fascist politics, writing from the cracks of neoliberal capitalism. For me and loads of people like me, independence is not just about a change of flag, it's about changing what we as a country stand for and how we can react to 21st century problems. It's not just putting a Scottish flag on neoliberal politics, it's changing the politics at its core. And I think a lot of people who joined the SNP like back in 2014, pre-India, way back in the 90s and early 2000s, also felt that way. They felt that the SNP was a way to move beyond the neoliberalism that the UK government was giving us. But one does have to question if that hope is still alive, especially as that hope is still alive within the SNP. The SNP is a well-oiled machine and that is undeniable. They've swept the board at every election from 2014, 2016, 2017, 2019. They're very good at winning elections, but that kind of seems to be it. That definitely sends like a historic powerful message in post-Indie Scotland that people are still really passionate and interested in winning independence. But what else do we have to show for it? Because we're not any closer to getting independence. We're not any closer to getting a second referendum. And the independence movement has backed the SNP time and time again, but it's clear now that the SNP can't really bring us to independence. They're at a standstill as well. They've played their cards and the courts have ruled against them. The courts have said that there's not really any major cause for Scotland to have a second referendum. And while being an oiled machine makes them good at winning elections, it really comes at the cost of empowering grassroots movements, of empowering the people, like you were saying, like the people in Cumbernauld who pushed back and went, actually, no, that's not what we want in our community. That's not what we stand for. And becoming part of this big oil, well-oiled machine that only really cares about winning elections really dampers that. And I think people power change is off the agenda for, for the SNP and the strategy is more what you would call lawyer power change. The SNP is dominated by professionals and managers who are really incapable of thinking outside the box. But this lack of imagination is reaching its limits. Obviously, as Kevin also discussed, the Scottish Labour wins in Rutherglen and West Hamilton have been a real beginning of a show of decline in the SNP's hegemony as perhaps more economically comfortable voters move back to Labour. They've kind of gotten over Labour's actions in 2014 and are willing to move back. But we can mobilise the thousands of indie supporters at marches across the country, but this also hasn't really brought us any closer to a referendum. We're ultimately bound by the fact that Westminster can just say no. But this is the independence impasse and right now it's breaking us. It's taking the independence movement and really just driving it into the ground. 
the left wing indie movement has been in crisis. Attempts to revitalise what we had in 2014 just seems to fail time and time again. We cannot build that momentum again as the movement focuses on indie, but that's not what's stopping us. Do we think that talking about radical socialist independence, but we need to do more than just think our way out of this, we need to start digging, we need to actively start pushing back and not just saying everything will be different once we're in an independent Scotland. Like That is the hope, but how do we get there? I think a campaign for a referendum must be equal to one for independence. If we're to break the impasse, we need to place getting that referendum at the heart of our strategy. A wee bit about the SSY now. The SSY is explicitly socialist. However, we're prepared to work with people across the independence movement. After all, struggle for socialist Scotland is the struggle for radical independence as a struggle for an independence referendum. They're all interconnected. We think we have a lot to learn from like the radical climate movement and anti-imperialist movements, such as Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, who have shown like how effective civil disobedience campaigns can be in the modern day really bringing these issues to the top of the media. And also I think a quick look at feminist movements throughout history from the suffragettes to the women's liberation movement uh, in the 1970s using a lot of civil disobedience to get their message out. We think we have a lot to learn from Palestine Action who challenged the British American Empire, which cost Scottish-based sales group, which supplies weapons to the Israeli state. Uh, 1.5 million in damage. Continuing the legacy of East Kilbride factory workers who in 1974 blockaded Rolls-Royce jets from being used by Pinochet against the people of Chile. We need an independence movement and referendum campaign that truly challenges the elite and is inspired by these groups doing the same in the past and present. I'm no expert, but some suggestions on where to start. Training and non-violent direct action, fundraisers to get them out into the situations of the British state puts them in. We also need links to indie groups and communities giving ordinary people a role in the change and growth of this new country. It can't just be people who are or who have been involved. We need to bring new people in and get regular people's ideas. We need organisers and administrators capable of tying everything together democratically and efficiently. We may be few at the moment, but we have people with these skills here today and we can use those people to further grow these groups. But should we just drop the radical independence campaign until we get a referendum? No, I don't think so. I think the campaign for the referendum is ongoing, but we also need to force the foundations of a movement that can spring to life when the conditions are right. We can't just wait for it to be right. We need to be ready to jump when we can. We need to build a network of radical independence advocates in our communities, workplaces and national political movements. That's why we're here today, to talk to each other, to build connections, to build communities. Scotland's future begins with the campaign and the means to the ends of this campaign must be radical. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kirsten. I'd now like to call on David Buckley from the SNP Socialists to give us his thoughts. Hello, I'm David Buckley. So I was asked to speak because at conference just there, I proposed the remit back on the independent strategy. So the remit back is basically, we agree with the principle of the resolution, but we don't think the mechanism is right. Uh, so the basis of uh, my speech is that the resolution itself and the amendments don't include anything for after after we get our sort of well in this case it's majority of seats and we go to Westminster and we say give us a referendum we have this mandate and Westminster goes no sod off 
like, we're not listening. There's nothing in the resolution, nothing in the amendments that, that deals with that sort of stuff. So, in my speech, I uh, outlined, as uh, Kirsten was saying, that there needs to be some sort of, like, groundswell of support. So, the latest opinion polls on independence, so Savanta's latest one was a couple of days ago, I think, has independence uh, yes on 45%, uh, no on 47%, and 8% undecided. Panel base from a couple of days prior has it again, 45% yes, 49% no, and 6% undecided, which is completely absurd when you think about what's happened in the last 10 years, because we've had... Brexit, obviously. Tory majority government, which has just turned austerity up to 11. And then you've got the uh, absolute horrendous mismanagement of the COVID crisis, and then now the cost of living crisis brought on by complete unwillingness to actually control the energy companies, first and foremost. In my speech at conference, I did use the words, we need to become ungovernable, we need to adopt a fully treasonous attitude towards the British state, which certainly woke the room up, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think probably the more accurate phrase would have been, we need to adopt an utterly disrespectful attitude towards the British state. The disrespect from Westminster is such that no matter what majority we get, no matter how many people we have voting for the SNP, voting for the Greens, voting for any sort of strain of like independence like supporting parties, Westminster holds all the cards. They can just say no and we have to just suck it up. The way that I'm sort of envisioning this radical independence campaign is that we have to shift that equation in Westminster's head. It's currently not in their best interest to give us a referendum because they know that if we actually have that like in people's minds if we have a repeat of a 2014-style thing where everyone's talking about independence, everyone's talking about the merits and the downsides of independence, then we're going to see a significant number of people shift from no to yes. From 2012 to 2014, we started off around about 28% of the population pro-independence, and we ended like within a hair's breadth of getting it. I think if we had had that sort of peak just like an extra week later, we might have clinched it. <laughs> And I'm personally of the opinion that if Alex Salmond wasn't leader of the party at the time, then we'd almost certainly have clinched it. Because when you look at the breakdown of ports uh, with women uh, versus men for independence in 2014, women absolutely just did not like Alex Salmond. So anyway, that's by the by. So I think right now the place where we're currently in is that the SNP is running um, in the next election on the basis that if we get the majority of seats in Scotland, then we'll consider that a mandate. The problem is that you're doing that with first-past-the-post, which is horrendously undemocratic. We could scrape something like 35% of the vote, and depending on how that vote breaks down across the country, we could sweep the board. We could take, like, 40, maybe even up to 50 seats. I don't think, personally, that that's a strong enough mandate, and that is the thing that people, that the media especially will focus on when they say it doesn't matter you know, what mandate you say you're running on, you don't have the numbers. And so I think we need to pivot our attitude away from campaigning specifically for independence in the, the short term towards campaigning for a referendum. If we can get the people of Scotland starting to think about how just undemocratic and blatantly unfair it is that we say time and time again, we just want to have a vote about this, even if we're going to get absolutely monstered again, um, even if we get absolutely stomped into the dirt, we still have the right 
to self-determination. We still have the right to discuss this issue, we still have the right to campaign for this issue, and we have the right to vote on this issue. It's going to be 10 years since the vote next year, and in that time we have had three Westminster elections and two uh, Hollywood elections. The idea that we can't revisit the issue of independence, especially after stuff like Brexit, like uh, the mismanagement of the COVID crisis and the cost of living crisis that we're currently suffering, the fact that like independence isn't even on the cards or a referendum isn't even on the cards is blatantly undemocratic. Now, how we achieve this is the big question, and I think it ultimately has to come down to a campaign of direct action. So I want to talk first of all about like my understanding of direct action versus what I'm going to uncharitably call indirect action. So indirect action includes stuff like the electoral process, so it includes stuff like voting for a political party to campaign on your behalf. It includes things like protest marches, which have to be cleared by the police, cleared by the local council, and generally speaking, will just be tens of thousands of people walking from A to B, shouting their lungs out, having a great day. But ultimately, unless you have like a massive number of people, like truly a massive number of people, that doesn't tend to shift the dial in the minds of the Westminster or whatever political group that you are campaigning against. So take, for example, the anti-Iraq war protests in 2003, where you had something like, I think it was like 2 million, 3 million people out in the streets of London, and yet we still went into Iraq. Now, like, absolutely just mind-boggling numbers of people campaigning clearly against uh, what they saw as an unjust invasion and an illegal war, and we still went into it. Because you can protest and you can shout all you like, but at the end of the day, if the political parties in power aren't willing to listen or don't think that you are you have like an actual like serious chance of threatening their hold on power they're just going to ignore you so coming to direct action so this includes things like industrial actions or strikes slowdowns things like occupations of government buildings for example like you get 20 people walk into the foyer of like Westminster of the Houses of Parliament you sit down sit down protest causes a massive hassle like, these are examples of things that can actually, like, wake people up, can actually get people thinking about the issues at hand. Uh, so, at the end of my speech uh, conference, I quoted um, the American civil rights activist, uh, Mario Savio. Basically, it goes something along the lines of, like, when the machinery of state is so odious that it becomes unbearable to, like, live under this, then you have to put your body on the line. You have to throw your bodies into the gears of the machine until the machine comes grinding to a halt. And the thing we have to remember right now is that the machinery of the British state isn't broken, it is working as intended. The suffering caused by austerity, the suffering caused by uh, restrictions of trans rights and so on, are a deliberate act by a deliberately malevolent group of people. They don't care about the human rights of uh, minorities and uh, so on, and some twisted part of them wants to hurt people. When it comes to this hypothetical campaign of direct action, we need to remember two crucial points. First of all, it has been non-violent. So far we have been extremely lucky that the independence sort of movement so far has been completely non-violent. Secondly, the target of these hypothetical direct actions has to be focused against elements of the British state, whether that's down in London or whether that's here in Scotland. If we start trying to tank our own economy in order to hurt Westminster, that's only going to turn more people off. We need to find those small sort of pressure points of Westminster influence in Scotland and 
we need to stop them from working. We need to throw our bodies into the gears and bring the machinery to a halt. Done properly, done successfully, I think that can get people to start to realise that the fact that we're being denied a referendum, just the chance to even talk about this, the chance to even uh, vote on this issue, hopefully that will shift the dial. But again, that's something that will be borne out through doing as opposed to just talking about it right now. Finally, I think that economically, Scotland is very much on the ropes. The Scottish Government has done a masterful job over the last nearly 12 years of Tory austerity, of like scraping every little penny they can to try and mitigate the worst. The problem is that there's no more fat to cut. The one that I think about as the most obvious one is merging the eight police forces in, uh, into Police Scotland. Now, that got rid of a lot of, a lot of like, administrative overhead, saved a ton of money, but the thing is, there's not many more things like that that we can do. So unless there is a significant cash injection uh, within the uh, timeline of the next parliament, ideally within the next two years, then the Scottish government is going to start causing like serious cuts to public services that will just ruin <laughs> hundreds or thousands and thousands of lives. In that sense, like independence is a humanitarian necessity, and the campaign to get a second referendum is likewise a humanitarian necessity, and that needs to be at the centre of our media strategy, our, our campaigning strategy going forward. We can't expect MSPs to become full-blown radicals overnight, but the thing to remember is that politicians don't tend to lead so much as they tend to follow sort of the vagaries of public opinion. When Barack Obama in 2006 was quoted as saying he was completely opposed to gay marriage, uh, 2007, I can't remember, said he was like in favour of like uh, strong civil unions and civil partnerships. And then in 2010 or 2011, he passed the gay marriage bill Congress. Like that came about not because he changed his mind, but because the American people changed their minds. So thing to remember is that where we go, the political lens will tend to follow if we are successful. And I hope we will be. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like now to invite Maggie Chapman. Thanks very much, Bob. And good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today and to be part of this conversation and the discussions later on as well. I've always believed that it is social movements that have the power to change the world. And that has perhaps never been more true than it is today. So I'm very pleased to be able to participate in the discussions, the conversations, the debates that we, we will have um, here today. The Radical Independence Campaign catalyzed a significant change in Scottish politics 10 years ago, along with other fellow travellers. And I hope that we can, again, together, deliver another change, because we so desperately need that. How do we, the independence movement, the radical independence movement, move on following the Supreme Court ruling and the UK government's refusal to even countenance another referendum? I should maybe start with a, a bit of a warning. Some of the things I'm going to say might not be the sorts of things that fill us all with a great deal of enthusiasm, but I think it is important that we are re realistic about where we are and where we need to get to. And I'm minded to mangle a Marx quote, because why not? He, he said something along the lines of, people may have agency, people may have will of their own, but they are constrained by the structures and societies in which they live, and that is where we find ourselves. The Supreme Court ruling may have been devastating 
to us in many, many different ways. But I think it's very helpful to us in one particular way. It makes it clear that whatever we do in Scotland, we have no way out of the Union. Passing acts in the Scottish Parliament can be blocked. Electoral majorities for pro-independence parties appear to be irrelevant. It's clear from that ruling that the future of Scotland is now clearly to be determined in England. And that's pretty devastating, but I think that is the reality of where we are. If we are to pursue a constitutional route to independence, it, re it requires us to win the consent of the English electorate for our future. There's an old Irish joke um, where a farmer in the middle of nowhere is asked how to get to Cork. And he answers, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> but we are where we are. And we can't really go back to the early 18th century. Um, so we have to start from here. Some people might have suggested that we should follow the example of Ireland in gaining our independence. But I think anybody familiar with what happened in Ireland in order to prize itself from the British Empire would be familiar with just how undesirable such a bloody route is. It might be tempting to hold ourselves up in the GPO, but that really is not the kind of future, it's not the kind of set, scene setting we want for our new country. So that leaves us with the option of winning a majority in England for Scottish independence. And that is a tough task. But I believe it is worth thinking about how it is that we can do that. And I think we can make that happen. That's how we got devolution. We didn't win devolution in Scotland, we won it across the UK. So first, we need to place independence as a progressive demand. In 2014, we, the Radical Independence Campaign, Green Yes, Socialists for Yes and others, shifted the parameters of the independence debate in Scotland from a business as usual, but shinier and better, to a radical and progressive footing that gave people hope. That is how we more than doubled support for independence in Scotland in a few short years. But we didn't really enjoy a great deal of support from the progressive movement in England. Yes, the Indian Party of England and Wales supported us. Some organisations like Compass supported us. But broadly speaking, progressive folk and those on the left remained attached to what we might describe as the British road to socialism. As a member of the Smith Commission after that vote, I was horrified to find that the TUC had countermanded the STUC's position that we should devolve employment law to Scotland. Presumably because they believed if English workers were suffering, Scottish workers should suffer too. In the intervening years, one area where substantial progress has been made is in convincing some of these forces beyond our own borders, the radical left, and groups and, and the movement in England, and, and, and this is important, that Scottish independence is progressive. We collectively have done that. So we are pushing at an open door. I think second, we must situate our demand for the right to choose in a broader set of democratic demands. And we've heard from others about the importance of democracy in, in our struggle. It should be the right of Wales and of the North of Ireland to choose their constitutional futures as well. We need a better electoral system. Absolutely, we need a better electoral system. We need serious devolution of power within England. In short, we need the transformation of England from an imperial country into a modern 21st century state. And in Scotland itself, this also points us away from much of the strategy of the last 10 years. 
The decision in 2014 for much of the independence movement, present company accepted, to fold itself into political parties has proved to be problematic. At the time, it felt great. Both the SNP and the Scottish Greens gained unbelievable numbers of members. In fact, for us, so many, our website broke. But it hasn't seen support for independence or that the strategy that political parties have been able to pursue uh, increase that support. Of course, political parties have an important role to play. I'm obviously a member of a political party and an elected representative for that party, which gives me a platform from which to campaign and to cause trouble. And mostly, I enjoy doing that. But we need, to, we need more than that. We need to create a movement for independence that is in itself independent of political parties. It's clear that no one political party, no grouping of political parties can deliver independence on their own. Indeed, we probably don't actually want the type of independence that parties that have been a part of the current broken system can deliver. We want something so much better than just the status quo. So instead, we need a broad-based movement that shifts people's opinions, both within Scotland and, as I've said, importantly, within England and the wider UK. And that's why events like today are so important. We need to work together across movements to place independence as a key demand. And we know that we're coming to this of the end of a decade and a half of politically motivated austerity. Every single crisis we have faced in the last few years has been deepened by the Conservatives' approach to politics. In 2013, George Osborne decided that he was going to take a short-term bonus by moving away from renewables and towards gas. This has rebounded by the extraordinarily high gas prices that the UK has been exposed to. And the cost of living crisis, or more appropriately, I think the cost of greed crisis that we are living through, is damaging our communities, just as it is damaging communities across the UK. Many people in England saw Brexit as a way to sort out the problems with austerity, the economic issues, the housing crisis, and so on. It's clear now, though, as if, if people didn't realise at the time, that Brexit is clearly only a way to deepen austerity and further enrich the elites and their pals. And of course, we are faced with the tragedy that, le that the Labour Party's approach is to agree with all of these silly self-harming policies in order to win over English nationalist voters. Labour's refusal to categorically condemn and agree to abolish the two-child benefit cap or rape clause recently is just one example of the clear failure of ima imagination that exists within that party, or at least within its leadership. And don't get me started on Starmer's approach to the energy transition. All of this may sound a little bit like a council of despair, but there is the opportunity to change all of these things. To do that, we need to take them head on. We need to be upfront about these challenges. We need to not shy away from difficult conversations. And we need to stop talking just to ourselves. It means a movement to take back the assets seized by the, the ruling class. It means a movement that stands alongside and in solidarity with immigrants, with all those fleeing conflict caused by imperial endeavors or, or the climate crisis, with those seeking refuge from persecution because of their identities or beliefs. It means a movement that stands in solidarity with workers and communities as they fight for the creation of a just economy that works for everyone. And it means working alongside progressives and radicals in England, in Wales, in the north of Ireland and elsewhere to create something better, not just for us in Scotland, but for all of us.
I know we are up to that challenge, and today is an important step along that journey. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maggie. Uh, and last but certainly not least, I would like to call on Conor Beaton from the Republican Socialist Party. Um, friends, let me start actually by saying thanks to Bob and to Richard who co-convened the group that brought together this conference. It's, it's been a lot of hard work, I know, uh, put this event together over recent weeks. And, and I think at times it's felt like everything, uh, not least the weather, has conspired against them. Uh, but I'm glad to be here and to have been able to make it from Dundee this morning. Um, I also want to thank everyone who's come along today and everyone who's watching along online, uh, which includes some of our own RIC activists in Angus and Mairns, who I know are gutted not to be here as a result of Storm Babbitt. We desperately need forums like this one. Uh, we can't get organised if we don't understand the situation we're in, if we don't know what we're organising for, and if we don't get organised, then we're not going to get anywhere. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is a make-or-break movement, uh, a moment for the independence movement. And I understand uh, why a lot of people feel demoralised. We can't give in to that feeling. That is exactly how the British establishment wants us to feel. They want to extinguish the last gasp of hope that the <laughs> referendum in 2014 represented. But neither do I want to make anyone here feel complacent about the direction of travel in the movement. I think it's never been clearer that uh, sitting at home and turning out to vote every few years isn't going to get us any closer to independence. Uh, and I'm afraid that the SNP's new strategy, which I think Hamza Yousaf said has answered the process question, uh, inspires no confidence in me at all for, for similar reasons as to what David set out. The first thing that this conference has to address is that the SNP's popularity has declined quite markedly, in fact, since the, uh, the 2021 elections, which returned a majority of pro-independence MSPs. And I think, by the way, that the failure to deliver independence is no small part of that decline. But all the evidence that we have suggests that support for independence is still at a historic high. The Tony Blair Institute, of all places, had to begrudgingly admit earlier this month that its own polling found that yes would win a referendum if it was held today. That is exactly why they won't give it to us. The biggest benefactor of this decline in the SNP, unfortunately, has been the Labour Party. I'm going to say two things about the Labour Party before I try and put it out of my mind, uh, for my sanity as well as yours. The first one is that, on principle, it is an absolute disgrace for any political party, regardless of its politics, build its comeback on the suppression of Scottish democracy. That is what the Labour Party is doing. The Labour Party pitches itself as the only alternative to Tory rule, and the only reason that they're able to do that is because they've lined up with the Tories to deny Scotland the right to an independence referendum. Secondly, what a woeful Labour Party this is. Led at Westminster by a human rights lawyer who can't even stand up for human rights when we need it the most, instead cheering on the genocidal campaign against Palestinians. And at Holyrood, at Holyrood by a multi-millionaire whose family farm won't even pay the living wage. So I don't think anyone can be in any doubt that this lot aren't going to deliver change in any kind. But we do have to acknowledge the, the new political context and adapt to it. So I think many of us have actually spent a long time arguing that supporting independence and supporting the SNP are two different things. For my part, I've actually never voted for the SNP in my life. I think what we need is a more autonomous grassroots movement. So that's one which looks to itself for leadership rather than to the SNP. It needs its own independent and democratic institutions. And it also needs to not be afraid of being fiercely critical of the SNP, actually. We need to rebuild a mass movement, and I think we need to learn the tactics of mass movements. 
So we've spoken a little bit about non-violent direct action, civil disobedience. These are the methods and we need to learn them. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the workshop that our friends in Climate Camp Scotland are running later on that theme. One of the best ways to learn is through the climate movement, the people who are actually using direct action right now. There isn't a country in the world that has become independent without a mass movement, without putting hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. So it's time to get realistic about that. I also think this movement has to be militant. Our principal mission here is to make sure that Scotland can't be reintegrated into the constitutional fold. We have to defend devolution from Westminster against all the efforts to roll it back, whether on gender recognition or even glass recycling, such a small thing to have to fight for. We have to reject the argument that we can't do X because Westminster won't let us. Let them try to stop us. Let them take us to court. We're not trying to resolve constitutional crises. We're actually trying to create more crises and deeper ones. These crises sharpen our understanding of the British state. This year, the Lord Advocate of Scotland paved the way for a pilot drug consumption room in Glasgow. It's sorely needed. It's actually needed in Dundee as well. The Lord Advocate is appointed by the Scottish Government. The last one wouldn't do this. He should have been chucked out right away by the Scottish Government of the day. Why have so many people died needlessly because the government was scared to pick that fight? We also have in Scotland, by the way, what Shelter calls a housing emergency. We've got a local government funding crisis. We've got a centralised government that is alienating people outside of the central belt, in particular our island communities. We've got to come to terms with those issues. That's part of the reason why this movement has to be radical. Uh, we're for independence as a means to an end. So I think we have to recognise the UK state is profoundly undemocratic. And its constitution has been designed this way explicitly to protect power and privilege. We don't exist in a vacuum, our movement. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, cost of greed crisis, as Maggie says, I think it's quite apt, in which hundreds of thousands of people are worried about how they're going to pay their bills this winter. We're in the middle of a climate crisis, which is not happening somewhere on the other side of the world. It's just made hundreds of families homeless in Brecon, Monifeith, and the outskirts of Dundee. Independence can be part of the answer to these problems, but only if we make it so. The Labour Party, sorry, I said I wouldn't mention them again, but they've, they've utterly betrayed the trade union movement. We can be the ones that are actually championing workers' rights, and we can start by demanding that the UK's anti-trade union laws, which are the worst in Europe, even before they introduced the minimum service law recently, will be scrapped on our very first day as an independent state. One of the biggest obstacles to making those links are actually independent supporters who treat trade unionists with derision. Low-paid workers in our councils who are going on strike are doing it because they need and deserve to be fairly paid, not because they're stooges of the Labour Party or anything else. They're not that. If you, go, if you go to any picket line and speak to the people who are on strike, you'll meet independent supporters. They deserve our solidarity, even and especially when they're striking against governments and councils that are run by pro-independence parties. And when it comes to the climate crisis, North Sea oil and gas is on the way out. It's time to give up on the dreams that this is going to be the, the future of the Scottish economy. We are going to hurt people, especially people that work offshore, the longer that we take to, to do the transition. We need to do that sooner rather than later. Friends, this movement also needs to be internationalist. Uh, I'm not just talking about doing the right thing, though we do have a responsibility to make right as much as we can, the wrongs of British imperialism in the world today, including in Palestine, across the Middle East, Asia and Africa. But it's also a practical point. I think for starters, we should be working much more closely with the other national movements across these islands, in Ireland and in Wales. To varying degrees, they are also having their democratic aspirations <coughs> crushed by Westminster. And we can apply more pressure together. 
I think early in a, a government led by Keir Starmer, I would love to see a march where we bring together in London the Welsh, the Irish and the Scottish national movements to demand a right to self-determination. We also have to learn from the movements that they are in the Spanish state, for example in Catalonia and the Basque country, some of us have already made those links, as well as the emerging movements in the likes of Puerto Rico, where we were very glad as a rep to bring someone from the Puerto Rico Independence Party to the COP26 just a couple of years ago. And it's not just independence movements we can look at, we should also be learning from the mass protests that take place, for example, in France over issues of pensions reform, the democratic movements that have emerged in the likes of Belarus and Kazakhstan. We can look at the climate movement worldwide. Uh, these are all uh, examples of movements from which we can draw tactics and learn lessons. This movement, we also need to be democratic. Part of the reason that we've fallen into a kind of a malaise, I think, in the last 10 years is because we've got a lack of genuinely democratic grassroots institutions where we were able to come together and actually discuss what's happened and where we're meant to go from here. I don't think we need more self-appointed leaders who are accountable to nobody. We've actually got far too many of those as it stands. So what I'm hoping is that this conference can be part of a process. It starts with the people in this room, but it has to go out much further in building a pluralistic pro-independence left. And I think this also has to be one that makes sure that our movement doesn't become a platform for misogyny, for racism, for homo transphobia, or for ableism. We've got to leave the culture war bullshit to the Tories, and we can see how well it's served them. And finally, I want to say that we've got to make sure this is a coalition. We've got to recognise the fact that actually, even on this panel, we don't all agree with each other on everything. Um, and I think that's OK. Uh, I don't have all the answers to all the questions that we're facing. Um, and I don't have to agree with all of you uh, in order to work together. We can always join together and struggle. So I look forward to hearing all of your contributions uh, this morning and throughout the day. Thank you. Following the opening speeches, there were a series of workshops, and here is some brief feedback. Some of the main points we touched on were um, particularly dwelling, predictably, given that they're the largest representatives of the independence movement in Scotland, on the SNP and its, uh, some would argue, disintegration recently. Uh, specifically the fact that the party, over the last 10 years, has, although it tends to publicly toe the line of, you know, sort of social democrats, there's an element of, you know, a sort of undercurrent of neoliberalism that seems to be underrunning the party, and generally kind of a lack of meaningful democracy within it. It's a very centralised party, both within the party structure and within the um, way it approaches government, that you can look at the dissatisfaction in the Western Isles with the ferry situation as a prime example, or Although, obviously, the Greens have a reason to oppose, things like the duelling of the A9 would be an alternative. Whether you support that or not, the fact that the SNP seem quite content to sit on it should go to show that they are, in every way, a rather centralising force. In another regard to the SNP, we spoke about the merits of engaging in electoral politics. Uh, some of us have argued that the problem with the SNP is that they don't focus on governance enough, they have a tendency to kick the can down the road and say, ah, but we could do this later on, rather than using the powers they have at the minute to address uh, socio-political problems, um, the issues of private companies being given contracts. Although, certainly, you could argue the British government have a ultimate authority in the issues of um, trade unions and so forth. <clears throat> on the other hand, uh, some of us argued that electoral politics only really serves to distract from campaigning for independence 
and furthermore legitimises the government which you're seeking to undermine, which could be seen as rather contradictory. Um, one thing we also touched on was how you define non-violent direct action. For an example of very squeaky clean non-direct action, you have Extinction Rebellion, who I personally perceive as being rather middle class and twee, but who certainly traditionally campaign uh, on the basis of allowing themselves to be arrested. Well, you could argue this gives as little ammunition to their political opponents as possible in terms of you know, smearing them. On the other side, it's very quiet. And when you look at most non-violent movements throughout history which have been effective, although it rather derailed in Northern Ireland in the 60s, the civil rights movement, whether in America, generally non-violent movements will still meet state violence with resistance. The poll tax riots were an example that were brought up, for example. So it depends on how you define non-violence. The state itself, any state, not just the British, uses violence ultimately to enforce its authority. It has a monopoly in violence. And while that doesn't mean you should respond with it, it doesn't mean that you have to expect it and uh, deal with it as it comes. Um, finally, we touched on the subject of hope, which is more uh, about the psychological outlook of the movement as a whole. I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that there's not exactly a feeling of great optimism at the minute in the independence movement. However, when we look at methods to deal with this impasse, which could be described as struggle, a movement can't be built simply on the prospect of struggling. There has to be an underlying current of hope and an expectation that we will have something better at the end of it. Struggle for the sake of struggle isn't appealing. People don't want to sign up to that. You need to remind people of what it is that they're struggling for. Hi, I'm Neve. I'm here with the Scottish Socialist Youth, um, specifically the Stirling division of it. A lot of things we were talking about was really championing localism in Scotland and its smaller groups. We kind of really got into the point Connor was making during his speech that um, party politics creates rifts. We're not going to agree on everything, but we've got to find some common ground and do the best we can to make a better place for something that we all want particularly as this will help give a voice to marginalised communities in Scotland as well, as there's some rather troubling sentiments in the SNP that don't want to make Scotland a place that welcomes everybody. So we really talked about getting a presence in grassroots communities, campaigning for independence and forums like this one, where people can, can come and display their voices openly. We sort of considered a two-pronged approach on how to do that, we talked about outreach in Scotland, collaborating among local groups in places like this to find independence, a place of common ground for all of us, and any sort of civil disobedience, particularly focusing in England, so as not to alienate Scots and really show to Westminster that we are a voice to be reckoned with. A colleague mentioned that they felt the strategy going forward should be similar to what was the last time around in Rick anyway, uh, which is this notion of putting the party politics at the door working together, build consensus across the piece rather and embrace the, the uh, marginalised communities. But I think looking back to 2014 we talked about our different experiences. So some people 
experienced the referendum and the build-up to it was very divisive last time, whereas uh, some of us uh, found it actually to be quite a, a, a hopeful experience, in fact, with a vision. And I think one of our colleagues summed it up nicely, referring to the, the Kurdish efforts to build uh, their nation, uh, saying that we need a perspective on division. So, you know, divisions to be welcomed as well, but uh, obviously done respectfully. And uh, mentioned a, a couple of key phrases here. Rather than talk about independence, we should talk about interdependence and uh, subsidiarity, so about empowering people in local communities at the grass level. I like what you said about keeping hope at the centre of the campaign. We need to make sure that at our core we are working for something better. Our group, the main theme that came up again and again in the discussion we had was the role of trade unions. It was mentioned that the trade unions were hardly mentioned in the discussion from the... the, There wasn't enough mention of of the role of of, of trade unions as specifically organising the, the care sector and some of the other uh, sectors that are struggling to organise in some places, but it's very difficult. The, the limitations of liberal democracy came up in terms of the, the Scottish Parliament, the way we have a setup just now. We spent years with, with, with democratic rights being under attack, and it's about time we went back on the offence and tried to make our democracy more of a social democracy, fight for things like employment law against trade, uh, anti-trade union laws and try and get that on the agenda. Uh, again, the role of the trade union movement came in on, on, on that. Um, the British state, a couple of people said, we'd have too much respect for the British state. I mean, that's something that's was mentioned before. It's something that comes up again and again. We're just too nice very often. We don't want, we don't confront things. And maybe that's where we need to move on to. The, the problem with the, with the British state, no written constitution, basically, they can make it up as they go along. And Scotland has no real constitutional right to demand that the people decide that that's where we're at just now with the impasse. Land question came up, land question, take back the access of the British state, start trying to tax land, tax non-productive land was this one suggestion, uh, which could be a good way of raising money. The importance of getting out in the streets, some people say, well, we're marching all the time, what's that achieving? But the actual importance of getting out and protesting and possibly forms of direct action, although what they would be, again, needs a lot of discussion and what's going to be most effective. Again, linking the constitutional question, the, the independence question, with the class issues, with the, the issues of the so-called cost of living crisis, how it's affecting people's lives, that was, again, <laughs> something that came up with Central. How exactly we do that is, is, is a big issue and a big challenge, but it's really the way forward to building a more working-class, orientated independence movement. Transphobia and the fact that it's rampant in Scotland uh, came up, and the appalling position with Starmer pandering to the right with his comments on that. We talked about Rick's role and how we, we really need to try and be an organisation that can draw together the different strands. There's a need for clearing house of struggles. I quite like that. There's a lot of work to be done to do that, but we really need to have more link up between the, the movements, the campaigns, the different issues, more networking, more coming together and some sort of organisation that can pull the left and the independence movement across Scotland together. And that's where we'll leave the RIC conference. If your appetite to get involved with some direct action and community activism has been whetted by what you've heard, you'll find out how to get in touch with RIC on their website, which is ric.scot. They have regular forums and new members are always very welcome. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you later. Bye now.